hello, hello, and welcome to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'll be answering your questions about squirting, is it a gush, a drop, what's the deal, and focusing on vulva-related questions. Whether or not you have a vulva, chances are you're going to learn something new. I also share part one of my interview with Clary Chambers about her work as an invisible illness advocate, accessibility advisor, and CEO of Spark Clarity. Clary is so engaging and wonderful to chat with that I even offered that she should be the host of this podcast. Lucky for me, she is far too busy with her own endeavors, and I am so grateful to have her on the show. But first, today in sex. As a love doctor, you receive some pretty cool gifts. Since finishing my PhD and starting this podcast, I have been given a custom-made vulva necklace, body silhouette earrings, vulva fridge magnets, and even a ceramic green and gold vulva. The best part of that vulva? It has a gold clitoris. It's amazing. But now, I'm feeling a little nervous about my clout as the love doctor, because this week, I start my sexual health educator course. Okay, some of you might be thinking, wait, 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 you're not already a sexual health educator? In which I say, did you not listen to the first episode? I have a PhD that focuses on using the arts to address sexuality, and that has meant that I have researched sexuality, how to talk about sexuality with groups of people, and how to make theater about those conversations for over four years now. But in Canada, that does not qualify me as a sexual health educator. In fact, the program that I am enrolled in through Options Sexual Health in British Columbia, the province where I live, is the only one of its kind in Canada. Currently, there is no formal process in Canada for teachers or health professionals to specialize in teaching sexual health, but this program is the closest thing we have to that. Isn't that just bonkers? It makes you think about who is teaching you sexual health and what sort of training they have actually received. So as I go along my own journey to become a certified sexual health educator, I'll be sharing parts of it with you because, you know, I'm going to find out some really cool things. Lastly, I'll say that it does not mean that I haven't been giving the best advice I am capable of on this podcast. I love doing research, and each week I spend several hours reading articles, compiling the findings, and putting them together to answer your questions. I'm also working to bring on diverse voices who can speak about their work and lived experiences so we can have more open dialogue about sexuality for all of us. So if you have questions for the show or want to send me your thoughts or ideas, send a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. And now, let's get to your calls. Hi, Leah. I want to start by saying that I absolutely love your podcast. It's so informative and fun to listen to. Um, and today I wanted to sort of bring up the topic and ask you if you had any really good resources for female sexual dysfunction and also vaginismus. Um, I've been diagnosed with a super tight pelvic four and vaginismus sort of in tandem, um, in the past nine months. And it's been super difficult navigating, um, trying to find resources and, just like learn a little bit more about it because obviously, you know, doctors have a certain goal in mind, which is like basically identify and treat. And I kind of just want to know a little bit more about what's going on with my body. And I thought you'd be a great person to ask. And I also feel like this is a great thing that kind of needs to be talked about more because until I was diagnosed, I literally had no idea 
that female sexual dysfunction was even a thing other than like a low sex drive. And I don't know, I just think it's a good opportunity to sort of let the world know. (laughs) So that's all I have. Thank you again for all you do. You are such an amazing and cool person. And yeah, I hope you have an amazing day. Thank you so much for your kind words. And oh, oh my goodness, I love the sound of like those little birds in the background of your recording. Uh, kind of reminds me of episode one. But anyway, let's get to your question now. So female sexual dysfunction and vaginismus, it's really not talked about enough. And I'm so grateful that you sent in your question. When I say female sexual dysfunction, what people often think of is pain in the vagina with penetrative sexual activity. The actual definition of female sexual dysfunction, which is now being called sexual interest slash arousal disorder, which is excellent as a far more inclusive term, it's about a distressing lack of interest in sex or feeling arousal. Note that the word distressing is there because if you're not feeling interested in sex and you don't feel bothered by it, then you're all good. But if you actually want to engage in sex but have experienced a change in your desire or your arousal, then it becomes an issue. But caller, based on your question and diagnosis of vaginismus, I think that talking about pain during sex is more of what you're after. I'm going to read the definition from the University of British Columbia's Sexual Health Lab, and this will help all of us get a better understanding of vaginismus and sexual pain disorders. So this is what they say. Pain with sexual activity is unfortunately a common experience for many women. Studies estimate that between 12 to 20% of women experience ongoing genital pain. A gynecologic examination that involves gentle touching, usually with a cotton swab, of the opening of the vagina can be crucial for making an accurate diagnosis. For some women, there is a significant element of pelvic floor tension contributing to the pain. The latter is sometimes referred to as vaginismus. Now, while this definition is great in highlighting what sexual pain disorders are, the use of women throughout really denies the experiences of folks with vulvas who don't identify as women. In this podcast, you'll hear me say folks with vulvas and folks with penises because I'm working hard to create a more inclusive space for trans and gender non-conforming folks to talk about sexual health. Okay, but to the resources you asked for, caller. The Sexual Health Lab is a great resource that shares the most up-to-date research on, as they say, women's sexual health, which, as we know, should say folks with vulvas. It's run by Dr. Lori Brado, who I actually got to meet last year at a conference on sexual health. I cite Dr. Brado's research in my PhD, and the website, of course, linked in the episode description, gives you full access to their studies and publications. This is something I try to address in the podcast, because as an academic myself, I get access to tons of materials that the general public doesn't, and it's totally BS. So I try to find accessible resources whatever I can for this podcast so you can access the information you need to make decisions about your sexual health. And in terms of accessible resources, I'm going to play a brief clip from Dr. Katz's YouTube video about vaginismus, where she calls vaginismus a psychosomatic response, meaning your fight-or-flight response, and your body's panic and stress about vaginal penetration. What is vaginismus? How do we define this condition? Is it a muscle problem? Is this a muscle in spasm? Is it a structural problem in the vagina? What is the condition? Vaginismus is... A vagina in panic. It is not a muscle that is locked in place. It is not a physiological or physical deficiency. It is not a block in the vagina. It is a reaction. It is a reactionary condition. Why would people react like this? 
because of fear of penetration, because of fear of pain, because they tried once and it hurt, because they hurt it's going to try. Or as the patient told us today, I was a virgin. I knew it's going to hurt terribly at the beginning. And then it started this whole cycle of pain. So vaginismus is an immediate reaction of our fight or flight nervous system. It tells, I'm afraid of penetration, I'm afraid of pain, I'm afraid of the unknown. It's immediate reaction in the vagina. So what happens is, yes, of course the muscles will get tight. The muscles that sit at the beginning of the vagina, at the opening, they will get tight by activation of the fight or flight response. So caller, I'm glad that you have a healthcare provider who could actually diagnose that you have vaginismus. Generally, vaginismus is treated with behavioral exercises in which fingers or plastic vaginal dilators of increasing size are inserted to relax the vagina muscles. There are therapists, pelvic floor specialists, and healthcare providers out there who can walk you through treatment step-by-step, and the two links in the episode description can help you find resources that'll work for you. If you find someone you can work with, hopefully they can also help you understand your flight-or-fight response and how to change that narrative in your mind and body. We forget that our brains are part of our bodies and there isn't some magical disconnect below our neck. Our understandings of our bodies and our feelings about our bodies and us as sexual beings, they come from what we have been taught and what we have absorbed into our own consciousness. So caller, I hope that is helpful, but I think understanding that there's probably some work you need to go to about why it is that your body is going into this fight or flight response and that might be something really helpful to talk to a therapist about and work through. Let's take another call. Hey there, Leah. I am a cisgendered woman in a long-term relationship, and I have a question about squirting. When I was very young, I was quite involved in the Christian church and got mixed signals about masturbation. When I finally decided to get to know my body, I was able to come, but I thought that I had peed the bed in the process. Since that experience, I find I get nervous during sex as my body is reaching climax, and sometimes find it difficult to come with a partner out of fear of making a mess. Can you explain squirting a bit more for me? Can someone tend to squirt every time they climax? And what can I do to work through my shame around it? Thanks so much. Lots of love. I actually received two calls about squirting, and they both bring up different aspects of what is great about squirting if you have a vulva that squirts, but also why there is a lot of shame and hypersexualization of squirting. You only need to look at Pornhub for like a few seconds to see what I mean. So here is the other call, and I'm actually going to answer both in one go. Hi, Leah. I'm a genderqueer AFAB person um, who loves listening to your podcast, and I'm in a long-term committed open relationship with a cis woman. So my question for you, or I guess something that I just want you to talk about, um, is squirting. So I have a vulva. And I have always, like since I started masturbating as a young teen, been able to squirt. And I've never been with anybody or really met anybody else that uh, can do that. When I when it first started happening for me, I googled it and there was nothing out there, nothing helpful. Basically just a whole bunch of misinformation and honestly like quite shaming uh, articles and things on Google. So I'm just wondering what resources you might have if you can debunk some of the myths and misconceptions that are out there and honestly just get people talking about it because I think it's great and yeah, Volvos are awesome. Okay, thanks. Bye. 
Okay, so during orgasm, some folks with vulvas, and from what I could see from research, between 10 and 40%, so quite a big spread, experience the involuntary emission of fluid. And this can range from 30 to 150 milliliters. This could be just a few drops, or it could be quite a bit more. Now, people have been fascinated with squirting or female ejaculation for literally hundreds of years, and really only in the last century have we done any conclusive research on it, which is still divided in opinions. First off, squirting is a totally natural phenomenon, and just like everything else about our bodies and our vulvas, they're all different. Different in the amount of fluid that's ejaculated, if people enjoy it, or if they're embarrassed by it. It can be a few drops or enough to soak the sheets, and some folks don't even realize it's happened until afterwards. While porn would like us to think that it always squirts out of us and, like, clears the room, it varies, and it can be just a little bit and come out with a lot of force or not. Now, for some folks with vulvas, the actual liquid from squirting could include some small secretions from the skein's glands called prostate-pacific androgen, or PSA. And if it is a larger amount of fluid, it's most likely urine. This is totally cool. And I'm going to read a brief expert from the Vagina Bible that did research on squirting and what that fluid actually is. It'll give you a better idea of what I mean. So another study looked specifically at a small group of women who reported squirting, meaning that they said they could release a large amount of fluid during orgasm. Now, these folks emptied their bladders and stimulated to orgasm. The amount of urine in their bladder at baseline, while aroused and after orgasm, was measured by ultrasound. Their urine was collected and analyzed before stimulation and after orgasm, and the squirted fluid was analyzed as well. The results? Folks with vulvas, their bladders filled remarkably fast during sexual stimulation. There was urine before orgasm, and their bladders were empty after squirting. The squirted fluid was identified in the lab as urine. So why does this happen? It's possible that when folks report squirting, they are simply having an orgasm strong enough for the pelvic floor muscles to empty their bladder, which is why it is associated with heightened pleasure. It's also possible that a more intense sexual response could result in a faster filling of the bladder. It's also possible that some folks have a lot of transudate, meaning that they get really wet during sex. And when they orgasm, that fluid could come out all at once. But more importantly than the mechanics of what's actually happening, the shame about our vulvas is the biggest issue here. And this is where I'll get my favorite doctor, of course, Dr. Jen Gunter, to tell us why. From a historical standpoint, women have really been excluded from medicine since the beginning of time. Early cadavers were only males that were dissected because it was considered inappropriate for early surgeons to actually see a naked woman. And so the early anatomy textbooks were basically women and midwives who told doctors what they thought about their body. And then, the, you know, the male doctors decided if they thought it was right or not. And they wrote it down, kind of like the original mansplaining. No, we don't think that's what happens. We think. Not that we've ever seen it before or touched it, but, you know... Um, and uh, women didn't get exams because their purity mattered more than their health. Um, and basically, a woman's worth was distilled to her hymen and her uterus. And we have this, because of this, this culture of vaginal shame, where women are constantly getting messages about improving their troublesome vaginas and their vulvas. And this is something that people profit off of significantly because we can't have these conversations in sort of non-sophomoric ways. Now, while I don't agree with the very gender binary language that Dr. Gunter uses throughout that clip, I think what she's really getting at is the root of shame and why we don't know enough about bodies that have vulvas and why the shame has been so ingrained in our society and within ourselves. 
Shame can be so hard to dismantle, and it can be painful to work through where it has come from, either from our childhood, from religion, abuse, socialization, culture, it goes on and on. But when we can work towards framing our bodies and our sexual experiences as positive and pleasurable, then we can start to create new narratives. So what does feel good for your body? What tools, toys, or positions can help you feel more pleasure? This is a lifelong journey because our bodies will change, and as we tap into what brings us pleasure, and I argue joy, it will make us feel more grounded and appreciative of our bodies, and hopefully it'll silence that little voice in your head that's trying to take you down. Also, let's do a brief chat about the G-spot. I'm sure we've all heard of it, but in my experience and from the research I've read, it doesn't exist. The front wall of the vagina where the G-spot is supposed to be can absolutely be an erogenous zone, meaning that it's really pleasurable to have it touched. And given the size and shape of the clitoris, where there is a body, root, and bulbs which surround the vulva and vagina opening underneath the skin, don't worry, I'll post a diagram so you can see what I mean, and only the clitoral glands are visible, and maybe that stroking or stimulating the front wall of the vagina is actually stimulating the clitoris, and hence might lead to increased arousal, lubrication, and yes, squirting. There's a lot of garbage out there telling us that we should squirt, how we should do it, or whether it's gross and we shouldn't do it. Now, research has routinely underserved folks with vulvas, and for the vast majority of history, and still now, our research is based on bodies with penises, and we are mystified if something is different for bodies with vulvas. My take on it, after doing some research, reading, and my own personal experience, is that squirting is totally natural, and not squirting is also totally natural. It can be surprising to squirt, especially the first time, but if this is your body's response to sexual arousal, I say celebrate it. Sex is so wrapped up in so much stuff about how it should be done and what it should look like, but it really comes down to pleasure. If it's pleasurable for you to have the front walls of your vagina stroked or other erogenous zones touched and played with by yourself or with others, then do that. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of myths and misunderstandings of a female ejaculation, but the bottom line is, if it feels good, then do it. Now, the best article I read after sifting through some really not so great ones is from the BBC called Every Question You've Had About Female Ejaculation Answered. The link is in the episode description, and the best part is when it talks about how we need to shift our understanding away from sex as a goals-based activity that we can master, and instead one that we can enjoy and experience in all of its different shapes and forms. And now that we are all more well-educated on squirting than we were 20 minutes ago, I am excited to share part one of my interview with Clary Chambers. Clary and I talk about accessibility, celebrating joy, and how each of us have opportunities to make change. So here it is. Okay, well, hi. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's a like, really beautiful day here in Souk, so it's really nice always when you can record and look outside and it's not like pouring rain or anything. Right? Just preparing yourself for like, you know, when the inevitable rain will like start oh goodness, and never yeah. end. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous for what it's going to be like for my first uh, full fall and full winter here in uh, on the coast. I grew mm. up in Ontario, so I'm used to a little bit of rain, rains for like a week, and then it starts to snow. <laughs> no, and then we're busy. But we were in England last year in the fall and in the winter, so I feel like it's going to be similar. I bought two raincoats last week, so that's <laughs> you're <where> prepared. We're <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Awesome. Well, as we're starting, do you want to like introduce like yourself? Like, how how would you introduce yourself if someone was like, "Hey, how are you? Tell me a bit about you." 
Yeah, definitely. So my name is Clarissa Chambers. Many folks know me as Clary, and I use the pronouns she and her. And I am, I'd say, a very funny human, but I also, when I'm not making myself or others laugh, I run my own business. Mm -hmm. I'm the CEO and founder of Spark Clarity. And so through that, I bring joy to education by running webinars, workshops, in-person community gatherings, and consulting, all for the purpose of making the invisible visible. And by doing that, creating spaces for folks with invisible illnesses and invisible disabilities to thrive is my main jam. <laughs> I'm doing that all the time. I woke up today and I was like, wow, you just think about your business all the time. And it's because yeah. it's more than that for me. It's about creating the opportunity or having the opportunity myself to live every day to create a reality that would have best served my past self. And so mm. I think that I just feel like this has to happen because it's so unfair to live and um, have to work so hard to thrive in spaces that were just not designed for you. Yeah, definitely. I really like how you frame that around this is a resource that you wish you had when you were younger. Yeah. Right? And you realize that gap. I mean, obviously, like our identities form how we like see the world. But when you see those gaps of being like, this isn't designed for me to do well, to thrive, to create those things. And it's so great that you really go through it through like joy. And you like you go through your Instagram account and it's very obvious that like you're just such a like bright, joyful person. Oh, thank and, you. Right? Like like and for myself, like I like I talk a lot about how I use like comedy and like playfulness to talk about things that are hard to talk about. Just cause my in my own view of I'm like, hey, I'm gonna talk to people about sex while Right. If I start with us like playing or we're going to do a game or like we're able to laugh about something, it's just so much better, I think, to listen to, but to also to like open up about those experiences. Absolutely. Right. With Spark Clarity, with the business, like even within myself, the whole point was to have hard conversations because living with a chronic illness or living with an invisible disability is hard. Mm hmm. But that being said, there are so many examples like pages, Told, Pinterest accounts lore of the really negative side to having a chronic illness. So I figured that in my corner of the internet, it was just not going to be like that because mm -hmm. it's so depressing. If you're already looking for answers, you know, when it comes to anything, even if you're looking at stuff in regards to uh, sex and sexuality, so much of it is stigmatized and it's bad and it's evil and like, don't mm -hmm. look there. <laughs> right? Yeah, so totally. Like, how can we, um, we make it comfortable so people can talk about their own feelings and use humor. I think that's so cool that even with, you know, when you're saying that, you know, when talking about sex, let's, let's make it playful, make it joyful. So it's good mm. to see, like, that's the point. So it's good to see that when you see my account, you're like, okay, I'm feeling some joy. That's right. Good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, you're like radiating it too. Like I just, it's really, I love it when it like comes up in my feed. I'm like, ah, Clary, great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, it's just wonderful. What's, What's interesting, and Ken, when we had originally talked about setting up this interview, I'd said that um, my husband, I always find myself, I said partner for like ages, but now that we're married, I'm like, right, I can like say husband. That still feels so weird to me. <laughs> but anyway, my husband, he also has um, a disability and a lot of the time it's invisible. And it's kind of on that interesting line where, I mean, unless literally he has his shirt off in front of you, you wouldn't see that he has a defibrillator for for a heart condition. So it's just been so interesting because I feel like a lot of the 
the rhetoric and the language about, you know, mixed abilities and about disability is about overcoming challenges. And it's like, oh, like, I'm so proud of this person because they've done so much despite this. And mm-hmm. I find that discourse just not as someone who who has a disability, but someone who has a partner who does. I just find that discourse kind of uh, problematic in a lot of ways. Right. I don't know if you could speak I, to that. Yeah. And so I follow an account, which I think is outstanding on Instagram called Crutches and Spice. And mm. so they are a person of color um, and they have cerebral palsy. And so they had put up and they put up really funny, but very like in your face, like you can't ignore these truths talking a lot about ableism. And so that's mm. from that side sentiment right that you know people with disabilities are an inspiration when it's like they're just we're just regular people living our lives and they had said that to compliment someone for overcoming a challenge that we have that not we because if you're disabled you didn't set it up but like that society has set up against you is not an inspiration because they've overcome a barrier that you've set for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like that's just like that makes no sense and when you think about it you're like hmm you know, when we're complimenting people for overcoming challenges that the society that we're living in and for many people are benefiting from, you know, exists. Like, that's not an accomplishment. Like, you know, it's like, you know, you you put a roadblock and somebody overcomes it, but you put it there. It's like, oh, you're, you're so, so inspirational. It's like, you set me up. Right, <laughs> like, me up the, like, yeah, you put this barrier yeah. in my way and then they almost do the same thing again. They're like, oh, I'm like, I'm, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations. And they're also like subtly putting another barrier in the way. You're exactly. like... Why are you dehumanizing me right now? Like, I'm, what or, is that? Or the fact that it's like you drive by. This is like a, this is a, a perfect example. So when construction's happening, we were talking, you know, offline about construction and, and different things like that. So construction favors the building or whatever is being made, but secondary favors cars. So if anybody has been around anywhere where there's construction project, what do you see if you're a pedestrian or you're on your bike or you're, you know, you're walking with your dogs, your kids, whatever, it's like sidewalk closed, like use the other one. You're just like looking around like, okay, where is it? Or, you know, you're put in a precarious spot where you're like having to walk into the traffic. Like it's not set up for, for people. And so folks who are using any sort of assistive devices, or are just walking themselves, like not all disabilities are visible and not every single person, um, like your partner, your husband, Levi, like he has, you know, he's using a heart defibrillator, but he's not, like there's no physical things. But if he, you know, and I don't know about his energy and different things like that, but if you're walking a straight path and your car's just on the other side of like where this construction project is, but now you have to walk all the way around, around the corner, up the hill, like all this different stuff, like that mm-hmm. can put a strain on your body, a one that you didn't anticipate for. And so mm-hmm. that's a barrier to being able to do what you need to do. And that takes away, like how I mentioned, from your ability to just simply thrive. You have to use all this creative potential to, to go forward. So I don't know if that fully answers the question or just that idea that the way in which the dialogue, and I think it's just from a lack of representation mm-hmm. growing up. And even now we use a disability sign. It's a silhouette of somebody in a wheelchair. Yeah. But how many folks do we all know personally who are in wheelchairs? Like, but how many folks do I know who have like diabetes or have endometriosis or they're dyslexic like me or, you know, they have, you know, even like Levi or, you know, myself, like there's so many people that experience mm-hmm. many different things and it's not always in that way. So yeah, I definitely think it's unfair also to idolize people 
they, you know, I think that the energy could be better spent into speaking, talking, collaborating, like what are the things that you need in the same way that we ask and we prioritize able-bodied people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, that's well said. And I, and I think, I think that's a really apt example and, and one that can create a real visual for people about, you know, that there's so many things that society has set it up for certain people to succeed and certain people need to use instead of using their creative energy to create something, to do something, it's just to get from A to B, you know, and that is so frustrating. I don't know. I, I can imagine just it feeling very ignored in society and being very aware. They're like, oh, this isn't designed for me. And so how that must feel when it's like, okay, like it's the assumption that I shouldn't go here or I shouldn't be able to do these things because it's not set up for me to easily do that. And I, and I think what has been kind of interesting in, in a way, not interesting in, in like a good way, but eye-opening is that in terms of COVID-19, people realizing, oh, when I leave the house, I need to put a mask on. I need to use hand sanitizer and being aware of the space that people take up and those barriers to do those everyday things. It it makes you aware of how you move throughout the world. I think so. And about, you know, exactly when you said about the space you take up, right? Because there's so many things that with the pandemic have brought to light and so many things that I think have changed, which are for the good, but also really discouraging. Like, for example, there have always been folks who have been isolated and who have been at home. Mm-hmm. And many of those reasons are because, you know, maybe they're immunocompromised, but also maybe the world outside where they live is not accessible just like point blank. So they're not able to access all of the same resources. Mm -hmm. And so now when everybody's at home, it's like, you know what, let's make art museums online. No problem. You know, people who are told uh, you cannot work from home. It is not possible. Now everybody's working from home. Virtual doctor's appointments. You know, I can't make it into the clinic. No, we have to see you in person. Not possible to do it online. Counseling is another one. Many Mm -hmm. counselors are like, we cannot offer virtual counseling. Not possible. And then the pandemic, so now everybody can get, you know, and so that, that's so challenging. And like, I've been one of those people before who have been sick, who have been at home, not able to, you know, do the same things that I did. And there wasn't like online check-in, friendship groups, like, you know, business conferences, we can't stream them online. It's too expensive. It's just a cost we can't do. Now your events are completely online. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's an example of when who's affected and then what changes happen. So that's always affected people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. It's always affected people who are parents that were at home. It's Absolutely. affected people who were taking care of aging parents. So there are all these these folks who it was affecting the whole time. And it's only when it affects, you know, the able-bodied mass majority of people that those changes get made. But then there's also good changes in terms of grocery stores doing, you know, the hour at the beginning for mm-hmm. elderly folks. Like, that's always beneficial. And doing these things are, all of them are being done for the betterment of everyone. So mm-hmm. I think it's, you, it's like, yes, when we take care of, uh, you know, it's like our team is only as strong as our weakest link. And not to say that these people are weak in any ways, but it's just, it's showing you that when we care for everyone, we all thrive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that brings me to the point that I wanted to talk to you about as well is, and I've mentioned on the show before, like talking about intersectionality. And I was actually just reading this like Vox um article about it and how like especially in the US but I know you know Canada very similar as well where 
intersectionality has now become like a term that the far right and conservatives are like, oh my gosh, like intersectionality is like going to ruin the world, all these snowflakes. I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw and I'll people who are listening, I will link down in the episode description so you can check out the article because she is brilliant. So she was a lawyer in 1989. She was looking at these cases and it was about black women. And she was like, well, what you're doing in these cases is only thinking about these people as women and then about as they're black, but they're black women. So that's a totally different intersection of their identity on their experience and how they move through the world and how the world has set up barriers right, has, has set up different ways that make it harder to access justice, to, you know, access so many different things. And so what I'm thinking about, and I think that sadly, like, folks who are able-bodied don't really think of ableism as a part of that intersectional identity. Like, our, our three big ones that we talk about a lot are class, race, and gender. All three of them, very complex. All to say, I find, what I find so great about your own work is that you're so open about the multiple ways that people experience the world. And you're open about your own way and your own overlapping identities that affect how you work in the world. So how, I don't know if you want to talk about like personally, but then also like in your work, how has that been? I mean, not necessarily like, how have you used the theoretical concept of intersectionality in your work? <laughs> not so much like that, but about like, how, how has that been is talking about these different layers of identity. And obviously it's going to be different for each, each person. And I've just thrown a hugely complex question. No, at you. <laughs> it, no, it, make, yeah, no it, it makes sense. So in a few ways, so one way in which I've used my intersectionality, so I'll just, I'll, since we're doing this on video, oh, sorry, on audio, you know, you make, there's lots of things that uh, inform my intersectionality that you can't hear from the sound of my voice. So mm-hmm. I'm a black woman. I'm a black queer woman. Uh, I have an invisible illness so I, and I also have an invisible disability and oh, and I'm a woman. So yeah, black woman, queer, disabled and ill, lots of things. And so those uh, and I guess that also I'm young, I'm, I'm 27. So like all those things inform, you know, my identity. And so the idea of intersectionality uh, and, you know, there's so many times I found throughout my life. So I studied at Carleton University in Ottawa and Ontario. And in that I studied human rights and I have a double minor in communications and legal studies. All of that to say, I find that in talking about race in talking about gender and inclusion and diversity, Folks are often, and I think this is a way of like keeping that knowledge, um, you know, within a certain group of people, they are using words and phrases that, you know, a lot of people have never heard of. Mm -hmm. And so even with myself, I'm coming at my own living with my own lived experiences, being taught and conditioned in our uh, capitalist heteronormative which means that like we grew up in a society that shows us men and women as like a partnership and that that's like the ideal and that's the only option and and, and then to be outside of that so to be queer to be in a same-sex uh relationship or you know anything that strays from the norm of women and men together in a relationship is considered othered weird um outside of the norm you know and, and it's not it's not thought of an example of that in real time would be you are signing your kid up for summer camp and it says, what is the name of the mom? What's the name of the dad? So no thought to the fact that they may be being raised by their grandparents, Mm -hmm. that they may just be with their grandparents for the summer. So, you know, parents or guardians would be like a better, more inclusive 
term. They might have gay parents. Like, you know, there's just, they're maybe raised by their aunts and their uncles. Like, to assume that every child is being raised by a mom and a dad when often mm -hmm. lots of folks are being raised by single parents, mm -hmm. too, is just like that's, a, that's like one of those heteronormative examples, just for folks who may not be familiar with the term. But for me in my life, I started off in my own career outside of university first as a nanny, but also after that, I was like, oh, I want to be a speaker. And so mm -hmm. I would look at speaker lineups, right? And they would all be white folks on the lineup. Mm -hmm. And so I would email them and be like, hi, like, uh, I really want to be a speaker. I noticed that you don't really have uh, a lot of diversity when it comes into like the messaging from these folks, because mm -hmm. not only on their expertise, but on their lived experiences are all have like a single uh, thread. Everyone is white. Um, <laughs> most people are the same age. Many are men. You know, we have one or two women. And so for me, having the lived experience of a black woman who's also queer, who's also uh, disabled and who's also ill, gives me a lot of ways in which I can relate to people. Mm -hmm. So in my own work, I think that that's why a lot of people are attracted to what I'm doing and, and the fact that I'm committed to making the invisible visible and speaking up against different ways in which inclusion and diversity is just is not there whether it's been intentionally forgotten whether it's a knowledge gap that somebody doesn't have but regardless I want to I want to be able to look at a space and be like yes this is for me or that this is okay for me to enter into and so all of those things layer up and they you know I'm you know sharing the positive side of it and the negative side of it all of these things make me more likely to be criminalized than somebody who is white um who even has exactly everything else you know they're white they're women they're ill they're disabled I'm more likely to be criminalized um which means that if I you know, commit a crime, I'm more likely to be convicted and then, uh, you know, prosecuted, put into jail. We did a course, it was called Criminalizing Women. And that mm. was a huge eye-opening for me in the way that society, just based on experiences of these two people do these two crimes, and it makes sense why this intersectionality came from not only a Black woman, but somebody who was in the legal system. Mm -hmm. Because you see it so clearly. Like, if you, if you want to make up um, excuses and debate it, but when you look at who are the people who are being criminalized, you know, and the fact that there is less of them in the populations, like, you know, there is something there. So it can, it, it is, it adds challenges to your life. And growing up, I got the message specifically from my dad that, and he didn't necessarily say these words outright, but in the way, you know, the, what I got from those messages and from our parents and families, there are so many mm -hmm. things that people never say, but what yeah. they do what they don't say, you know, the expectations they have on you, like we feel those in different ways. Mm -hmm. So the idea to already be black is challenging. Like we, you know, we live in a society that's racist and then, and then to be a woman, like, you know, that was, good. It was hard. So mm -hmm. the, the feelings that I got growing up was that like, you don't have the room to add on any layers of more intersectionality. Because already being black and being a woman, that's that's already like a lot. If we're thinking that, you know, we're comparing it to our baseline of like being a white male. Like, yeah. you know, I'm very far from that already. So when I, you know, wanted to be tested for a learning disability, when I wanted to go to counseling, like those things were struck down because I think from their perspective, for my dad, it was is wanting to like protect me from, you know, identifying myself as more checking more boxes, so mm. to speak. But I think that, you know, we are who we are. And Percy was saying it so eloquently from a, a post that they had seen that it's like being black isn't hard or isn't challenging. It's 
white supremacy that makes being black challenging yes. in the same way that like being somebody with a disability is not does not make the world harder for me it's the fact that we live in an ableist society that that prioritizes and that celebrates people with able bodies compared to not mm-hmm. and so it's not these intersectionalities can be seen as a negative and i mean they are in terms of uh, my more likelihood to uh, be prosecuted or in the criminal justice system but for me I see them as my strengths because they are what, what I have. And so being open and talking about them, especially because many of my intersectionalities are invisible. Even if uh, folks were watching us have this conversation in person, you wouldn't know that I was ill by looking at me. You wouldn't know I was disabled and you wouldn't know I was queer. Like we don't know uh, until, mm-hmm. you know, we identify those things. Yeah. I'm actually just reading uh, me and white supremacy right now. And okay. I, yeah, no, it's it has it has been like a real struggle and confrontation of like, oh, like there's a lot of shit that I have to deal with that is not at all. And and I think what you're saying about the conversation you and Percy had, it's like these are the social barriers and the socialization that I've had in in my mind and it's just being like, "Oh my god, like I a I have to deal with my own white fragility, which is like <laughs> very confronting when you're like, "Oh god, like damn, I thought I was better than this. Nope, nope. I still have all of this shit that it's so much easier to put it on and say, this is like your problem. And white males, this is your problem. Like, no, this this is just as much something that I really need to sit with and, and work with. And I think what I find interesting thinking about identity and intersectionality is that it's a way to not only think about our personal like lived experiences, but then you're also looking at the social institutions So it really struck me when you're saying, like, you know, being black isn't hard, but being black in a society that is steeped in white supremacy, that's the hard thing. And so intersectionality for me feels like a real link to say, this is my lived experience, and this is so tied to how we're socialized, how society has pigeonholed us in certain ways. So it's a way to look at identity as that as that more complex interwoven things but also too when you're saying like you know that comes from a lot of your strength and a way for people to connect to connect with you as well and i think that's you know like we've only chatted a few times but already i feel very like open and i want to like talk to you and share things with you which is so yeah. nice because because you have so many areas for people to connect with you on yes so, very true very true yeah, yeah that's way to put it and allowing ourselves to be you know i it's it's a weird thing that i want to say allowing ourselves to be vulnerable because this is who i am whether i say it out loud and let people know or speak about it with a mic like these are still the experiences i'm having whether you know it's from the times where you know as people say you were closeted like where i wasn't out as being a gay woman or I wasn't out as being somebody with a disability, that statement's kind of come up a little bit in different conversations I've had in terms of Mm. how do we connect with folks who don't really consider themselves disabled. Mm. Um, Like even with your partner, for example, like, you know, if, you know, if they were filling out a form or somebody asked, like, do you have a disability? They might say, no, I don't know. Like, and so Mm. 
it's, you know, because we don't feel like we, you know, are enough of one way. But I think the reason why a lot of people who are ill and who are disabled, whether it be a visible or invisible disability, don't feel disabled enough, I think are two reasons. One, because the, you know, the, vi- the visual that we've been given is wheelchair. So yeah. if you're not in the wheels, like, you know, and that's it. Okay. And then the second one is that at least in Canada, we can speak to this experience. If a disability or an illness is categorized as something that you can go on disability for count as a disability. And usually mm. it's all just based on whatever our insurance companies will compensate for. So yeah. fibromyalgia, which definitely disables me in many ways, is not considered, you know, a disability in some spaces. In some spaces it is. They mm. also have a learning disability, right? So to me, I'm like, okay, yeah, I count. I count. I officially count because I have a learning disability and dis- learning disabilities count. Right. But fibromyalgia doesn't often count. So mm. a lot of people have like endometriosis, which would, you know, is debilitating. Mm-hmm. Is it, does it count as a disability? I guess it depends on who you're asking, your workplace and, and different things like that. But being able to share who we are, I think really allows us to know each other better. Yeah. And it also allows us to do the work better. Sisters, brothers, parents, whatever, you know, your relationship is to those people, but to be better for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's interesting when we had had our, our conversation before, like our pre-interview chat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I talked before how I've never used a word like queer to identify myself just because I've felt not queer enough. And we had talked about, you know, that that had been your experience talking to a lot of bi folks is being like, well, yeah. I'm bisexual and and I think especially for me because I'm married to a man. And so I have, you know, in society, when I walk down the street, I hold my partner's hand and people are like, that's a straight couple. And so it's always been a strange thing. And I I just really appreciated your holding the, that space of being like, you know, there's in terms of disabilities and stuff as well to be like, oh, well, am I enough apart? Can I actually claim that part of that identity and our language like I don't can't, we can't forget like the power of language, right? And how we use those words to describe ourselves, but then also how others will use those words to describe us, whether or not they actually align with with what works for us. Yeah, exactly. And the the one thing about which we didn't necessarily say, um, which I didn't say when we were talking about like you not using the word. So just so that I'm hearing you correctly, you don't use the word even now queer to describe yourself. Not normally, no. No, I would, I would still just say, I would still just say bi, bisexual. Yeah. And I, yeah, I find that a lot of folks that I know who, who identify as being bisexual, there's this, you know, bisexual to them, maybe meaning that uh, they are attracted to both men and women. Would that be for you Mm -hmm. as well? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And as a more femme presenting person like oh I'm not um I don't look queer enough because you know society has labeled out like lesbians are butch or they're a femme and you know and that's it if you don't look like either one like how will we know who you are kind of thing or the Mm -hmm. way in which um we're supposed to act or be but the but the thing about it is that as um what is it a straight passing person which Mm -hmm. is means that when you look at someone you're like you assume them to be straight compared to like, if you see somebody 
I don't know, like, what would make you not? Like, you got a whole pride flag arm tattoo. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, whatever stereotypes you're, you know, putting out there. Like, maybe it's a a woman-looking person and they have a short, you know, male haircut. Like, everything, Mm -hmm. like, when you you really break it down, you just realize how gendered everything is Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, how much it's all being police to be in that way but there is privilege in the fact that if you look straight presenting and you're around people who are homophobic and who are to the point where they want to inflict violence on people like that then Mm -hmm. we definitely we benefit and I find that a lot of uh, folks who identify as bi are in relationships with men and mm-hmm. so being in a relationship with a man, you know, compared to same sex, like folks that are walking down the street together, if you're faced by, you know, the same level of oppression, like one couple is not like, they're not going to come up to you and start being like, you know, <laughs> like just yelling at you and saying like, fuck you, like we hate you. And what mm-hmm. are you doing? Like, what? Like, how would they even know compared to like seeing Percy and I walking down the street together, holding hands? So what I, what I think, and even this kind of reflects back to what we were talking about before in terms of when you were talking about uh, doing the work of yourself and dismantling those systems of white supremacy as being like a white woman yourself. I, we were listening to a panel earlier this week and it was, it was called no tea, no shade. And they were talking about dismantling racism and just like their own experiences as black queer folks Mm. and they had said like you know we don't need more allies like you know that if you are not just um, performative allies like you know that you have done the work and that if if the people who hate me for being who I am also hate you then that's a sign that you're no longer benefiting from those people who are benefiting from these systems and I think that's the same thing that's missing you know and this is not just painting every single bi person with the same brush but people who have been said really terrible things to them you know it's like oh i you know i'm not performing my my queerness the right way so Mm. now i'm like out you know but i think that where it comes to is that you know are those same people like are they going to uh pride marches are they you know are they challenging um homophobic language in their own workplaces are they standing Mm -hmm. up for the people around them like if you you know it's like i want to be part of the community it's like so then be part of the community and like do those things like you know i I, but that's also just like my own thoughts on it like i i don't identify as being bisexual i haven't had those experiences of people um you know uh telling me that i'm not worthy of like being in the group because this is the way i identify or these are the partners i'm with but i think that it kind of comes down with that to everything and mm-hmm. we can't just be like well i have a lot of you know not thinking about bi folks but you know if you're like i have a lot of gay friends it's like okay well that's great god i'm happy for you like yeah you know i have a lot of black friends all right you know it's like we can't just we can't just like trying to think of the right words for it it's like our proximity to people that are marginalized doesn't just make us a good person just yeah. because we like find ourselves in close proximity, whether it be in like relationships. So all of that to say is that I think we do a bad job of upholding these systems that are there to oppress us, even within our groups. Mm-hmm. So even, you know, whether that be within the queer community in the same way, like with gender or gender expression, like it's so many of our peer groups that are actually keeping us in these systems that were set up to oppress us in the first place. So I think it's taking a, a critical look at like, what you're saying, why you're saying it, and the expectations you have on people. Like, is that truly what you think? Or is that what somebody else has told you to think? Definitely. I think it's calling out the, okay, so if, if you're a part of this community, you have a responsibility now. But it's things that I'm like, yeah, I'm going to like go to 
pride and I'm going to make sure that I'm the one who put myself in the line to have these these conversations with folks who are homophobic or who will like say something and not even realize, you know, that what they're saying. But that's also totally my privilege coming in. I'm like, I can say this because I am coming from a straight passing relationship and I've, you know, had relationships with other women where I'm at a restaurant and we're holding hands and I'm so nervous because I just haven't had a lot of experience doing that. I'm like, oh my gosh, this feels so right to who I am as a person. And like, and this person, I'm having this experience with them, but not having that experience every day. I was like, wow, like this is, this is a lot of, uh, a lot to like put on the line and a lot of like, oh my gosh, how will other people react? Yeah, but yeah. I, I definitely, like, I grew up, you know, in Catholic school, going to church all the time, mm. and around parents who didn't necessarily say homophobic things, but they never said anything positive either. Right. And right. so it makes a huge difference, like Percy and I were saying, like, now that we are a couple and we're around family, or especially family with kids, I feel like people get so odd. And so it goes from, like, they're accepting, you know, saying, like, we're with you, and it's all good, and we're all, whatever, and then, well, I guess you wouldn't be a great example, um, because you're also bi, but, like, so saying mm-hmm. it's, like, with a family a family member, and mm-hmm. they're cool, we're cool, I don't, I feel like they're accepting, they're not homophobic, whatever, now they have kids, and then it's, like, we're both there together, and the kids are, like, so, who is this other person? Like, they've never, but if we were a straight couple, this is their boyfriend. This is their girlfriend. It would just like, and then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, and so it becomes like this awkward place. And so I'm finding it challenging, uh, knowing what to say, how to act, uh, because it, it goes from like, I feel accepted by you, but now that there's kids involved, it's like, I'm no longer accepted or there's like slight things that people are saying, you know, I mentioned that this is my girlfriend and then they start asking about their kids. Do you have a boyfriend because they're girls? But then mm-hmm. it's like, there's no room for uh, you know, uh, it's, it's something I'm still working through, but it's really hard and it doesn't feel great. And I think like a main takeaway for everyone listening, since we talked so much about like intersectionality and the concept of race and stuff and ability and disability is that every time that we have the ability to have those conversations, to not put up with the racist, homophobic, ableist things that our family or friends are saying, that's when we have the opportunity to make change. Mm -hmm. and to allow for people at large to be accepted you're very good at your job i can see that you (laughs) right i could just all right i'm like do you want to host this podcast because i'm like i know seriously i'm like um do you feel like this is all back of like what you wanted to talk about totally no i think it's awesome i think talking about our lived experiences it all relates to our understanding of sexuality like sexuality is a part of that all all a part of that and so i yeah i think it's it's great. I really, okay. really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, good. Okay, yeah. Good. No, so good. Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of the Love Doctor, I'll be sharing part two of my interview with Clary about her relationship with Percy and how great communication leads to great sex. So if you have questions that you want to ask, send a voice memo to the Love Doctor podcast at gmail.com and I will do my darndest to get it on the show. You can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review. Till then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.